It's good to see you this morning. I just want to say if this is your first time with us or a second time or any time, it's just a pleasure to have you. It's a joy to have you to minister. I say this regularly. This is the most important meeting on the face of the planet, that the redeemed would gather together to worship the one who redeemed them. It's such a joy to be here with you. And, you know, again, we recognize that if, if, if you're uh, visiting with us this morning, then you made a choice to come here, and, and we count that a real pleasure to serve you in any way we can. So please let us know how we may serve you. Um, I'll be up front and around, so please don't, don't hesitate. But this morning, I want to begin with a question that's lovingly designed to corner you. I want to put you on the spot a little bit in a really loving way. I want to make you squirm in your seats. Sort of how doctors do when they have a really big needle that they're going to stick in your arm and they say, this might pinch just a little bit. Well, the question I'm going to ask is going to pinch just a little bit. The question is this. Here we go. The question is, do you have eternal life? Do you have eternal life is my question. In other words, are you a Christian? Are you saved? Do you have the treasure of salvation by faith in Christ? And are you reconciled to the God of the universe is what I'm asking you. And if you say that you are saved, that you do in fact have eternal life, well, my question is, well, how do you know? How, how do you know? How would you know if you did have eternal life? Which is a fair question to ask, right? Because something as significant as living with God forever deserves brutally honest evaluation, doesn't it? I mean, we can't afford to not know this. I mean, there's no margin for error here. Either we do or we do not have eternal life. And again, it's not enough to just say that we do. There has to be the validating evidence that proves we do. I mean, think about it. The one who has been saved out of spiritual death into eternal life should have some kind of corroborating evidence that reveals the authenticity of their salvation. Agreed? And so the question is, do you have eternal life? And how would you know if you did? And the reason why I asked that question is because the Apostle John prompted me to ask those questions because those are the very same questions that he asks in his letter known as the first epistle of John the Apostle. Those are the very same questions that he both asks and answers. And starting this morning for the next several months, that's exactly where we're going to be. That little letter tucked in the back of our Bibles, close to the book of Revelation, that masterpiece known as the first letter of John the Apostle. And you see, what this letter is designed to do, why it's in our Bibles, its purpose and goal, why it's there, the contribution that it makes to the Christian life, is that it asks three questions of earth-shattering significance. Number one, what is is eternal life. Two, do you have eternal life? And number three, how would you know if you did have eternal life? That's the contribution John makes to our lives, which means, although short and found at the back of our Bible, 1 John deals with matters of infinite significance. And yet, having said that, I don't want you to get the mistaken idea that John's aim is to deliberately make you doubt your salvation. The, the point is not to make you unnecessarily fearful or introspective. Although John will make you sweat and push you to the brink, the goal is not to make you question everything you've ever believed. In fact, it's exactly, it's exactly the opposite. In fact, in chapter 5, verse 13, John reveals exactly why he wrote this letter. Listen to what he says. He says, these things I have written to you. Why, John? Why did you? So that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, would know that you have eternal life. 
That's what John is doing in this letter. You who believe in the name of the Son of God, I just want you to know that you have eternal life. You have it. It's yours. It's certain. It's guaranteed. It's permanent. It's irreversible. It's paid for by Jesus Christ. And oh, by the way, here's all of the validating evidence of what it looks like when you actually have eternal life. That's what this letter is. It's a manifesto of eternal life. It's five chapters designed to give glad-hearted assurance and joy that those who have embraced Jesus Christ as their highest treasure do in fact have eternal life. That's why we're calling the series Assurance of the Treasure. To give you assurance of the treasure of salvation. Not that John's going to take it easy on us because he's not. He will not give assurance to those who shouldn't have it. John's not going to flatter us. He's not going to cater to our feelings. He's not going to pull punches or avoid saying hard things. No, this letter is filled with love, to be sure. But it's the kind of love filled with knuckles and teeth and being willing to be brutally honest to say hard things. Which, when it comes to matters like eternal life, is exactly what we need. Agreed? And you see, the reason why we need this right now, the reason why this is so, such an urgent need for our church is because, because the health and joy of any church is profoundly dependent upon the people in that church knowing exactly what salvation means. Where theology is weak, souls are weak. Where doctrine is fuzzy, churches are fragile. Where knowledge of salvation is lacking in the church, spiritual health suffers in the church. Put it this way, the courage of a people to suffer is profoundly dependent upon knowing what salvation means. So today is orientation day for the first letter of the Apostle John. Today we prepare to spend the next several months of our lives in a book that I hope will profoundly change our lives. So here we go. There were no notes on the door or on the table as you came in. If you don't have those, you could totally feel free to run and grab those or someone can grab a whole stack of them, put them on that wood thing over there. But either way, here is the outline. Here's where we're going. If you like points, I've got them. This morning I want you to see three features of First John. Three features of First John that reveal it to be exactly what we need when the winds of opposition begin to blow. That's where we're headed. Three features of First John that reveal it to be exactly what we need when the winds of opposition begin to blow. And I just want you to know they have already begun to blow. The first feature of the letter of John, number one, the author of John. The author of 1 John. Which is interesting, because not one single time in anywhere throughout the letter does the author actually name himself. Not one time. Explicitly. No name, no signature, no license, no registration, just a completely anonymous letter which we know and refer to as the first letter of the Apostle of John, which, if it were truly anonymous, wouldn't pose a problem at all because we have so many books in the Bible and we have no idea who the author is. The book of Romans, whose author we know, and the book of Judges, whose author we don't, are equally inspired books. What gives a book its power and authority is not because the author names himself, but because God moved that author to write the exact words that he desired. That's called the doctrine of inspiration. And yet having said that, although the letter of 1 John is anonymous, it's not actually anonymous. There's a reason. There are multiple reasons why we call 1 John 1 John. In fact, there are three specific reasons. I'm going to give you those right now. Three reasons why we know that the Apostle John is in fact the author of this letter. Reason number one, there is a traditional reason. There's a traditional reason why we believe the Apostle John to be the letter of this, the author of this letter. You see, there is unanimous, ancient, historical 
tradition that points to John the Apostle as the author of this letter. For instance, there are two ancient church pastors, a guy named Papias and a guy named Polycarp. They lived in the same region as John. They lived in the same time period as John. They knew John. They were discipled by John. And in their writings, they quoted this letter. And the one to whom they gave the credit for the quote was the Apostle John himself. In fact, every ancient historical writer that quotes and refers to this letter believes John to be the author. For instance, Irenaeus, 2nd century. Clement. 2nd century, Tertullian, 2nd century, Origen, 2nd century, Cyprian, 3rd century. The point is, those closest to the time period of John, who lived in the same zip code as John, knew without question that the Apostle John, who knew Christ, who saw Christ, and who sat next to Christ in their last meal together in the upper room, was in fact John the Apostle. Second, there is a historical reason, a historical reason why we believe without question this to be authored by the Apostle John. You see, we have in our possession thousands, actually tens of thousands of ancient copies of the New Testament, tens of thousands of of copies of, of the New Testament. We don't have the original version written by the author himself, but it doesn't matter because we have tens of thousands of ancient copies of the original, and we have so many copies, and they are of such quality that we have, get this, zero doubt as to the authenticity of the New Testament. Zero doubt. Now, whether you believe, with it, you believe what it says is another matter entirely, but we have no question that what's in our Bibles has been so preserved for us that we have exactly what the original authors wrote. But you see, that's not actually my point. My point is, is that at the top of the letter or book, they would put the name of the author if they knew who it was. And of the roughly 200 ancient copies of the letter of 1 John that we have, every single copy except two bears the name of John the Apostle. And no other manuscript attributes it it to anyone else other than John the Apostle. The point is, that means everybody in history had zero questions that the Apostle John was, in fact, the author of the letter that bears his name. But number three, there's a third source of evidence, and this, for me, by far, is the most persuasive. But there is actually internal evidence that John was the author. Internal evidence. Here's what I mean. I mean, the most compelling evidence for the authorship of John is not actually found in history, but in the text itself. Here's what I mean. Every New Testament author had a particular way he wrote. Particular words, vocabulary, themes, theology that were unique to that author in particular. It all harmonized together to form one message, but there were particular words and phrases and theology unique to that author. And what no one can deny is that the author of the Gospel of John and the author of this letter are the exact same person. Do do, do you see? Whether you believe that John authored the fourth gospel or not, no one can deny that the author of the fourth gospel and the author of this letter are the exact same person. For instance, look at your notes there if you've, if you've got them. There are, there, I have a chart in there showing the similarities between them. You see the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 18. John says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is in the presence of the Father, he has explained him. Well, that's interesting because 1 John 4, verse 12, no one has ever seen God. God, exact same phrase, every letter in the Greek is exactly the same between them. The Gospel of John, chapter 15, verse 13. Notice, no one has greater love than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Well, that's interesting because 1 John 3, 16 says, he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Exact same language. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God. And the Word was 
God. Well, that's interesting because 1 John 1, 1 says this. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld in our hands handled concerning, notice, the word of life. Do you see remarkable similarities? In fact, no other book in the New Testament uses the words light and life and love and truth more than these two books. Which means the author of this letter is not the copycat. He is the cat. John didn't put his name on it because he didn't have to. He didn't have to because the way he wrote and how he wrote and what he wrote is the forensic evidence that what we are dealing with here is in fact the handiwork of John, the son of Zebedee. The fisher of fish turned fisher of men. The son of thunder. The one who composed the greatest work of eschatology in the history of the world, namely the book of Revelation. And over the next several months, we are going to get to know this man through his writing and through his theology. He is going to teach us and instruct us and disciple us. And his words, like chisels, are going to carve us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I ain't going to lie to you. It will cut, it will sting just a little bit but it will hurt so good and it will bring healing and joy to our souls. The second feature of John's letter, the second feature of the letter of John, number two, the urgent situation of John. The urgent situation of John, because the situation was urgent. And a little thought experiment for you. If you read the New Testament from cover to cover, If you read Matthew through the book of Revelation, you'll notice a very interesting trend. You'll notice that as you read, demon possession is mentioned less and less, and false doctrine is mentioned more and more. Why do you think that is? What does that tell us? It tells us Not that Satan's activity is less nowadays, but that his activity is largely in the form of false doctrine, false teachers, and subtle heresies that seek to infiltrate the church. And that's precisely the case for the letter of John. This letter is not some chit-chatty, catch-up, shoot-in-the-breeze. Rather, this letter drips with the blood of brotherly love. This letter is soaked with the sweat of urgent concern. This letter is stained with the tears from a pastor's heart because something is rotten in Denmark, or should I say, in Asia Minor. History tells us that before being shipped off in exile to the island of Patmos by the Roman government, as a senior citizen, by the way, that John had spent 30 years in the area of Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and he was there from roughly 60 A.D. to 90 A.D. He was the church-planting, word-proclaiming, scripture-writing apostle of that region, and when he wrote this letter, he was in his 70s, 80s, maybe even his early 90s, which, just as a footnote, is absolutely incredible, isn't it? Here is the senior citizen, at the end of his life, this geriatric apostle, the twilight of his his career, and here he is just immersed in the life of the local church. Teaching, training, discipling, raising up pastors. When all of a sudden he gets wind of some weird heresy that had infiltrated the church, maybe even lots of churches. And you see, when we read between the lines, what we can gather is that there seems to be some persuasive, influential, power player kind of people who had crept into the church with these plausible sounding arguments that called into question some of the most central doctrines of the Christian faith, like the deity of Christ, like the incarnation, like the full humanity of Christ. They minimized the worth of the atonement. They maybe even questioned that Jesus was the Messiah at all. But their real claim to fame, get this now, their real claim to fame was the secret, exclusive, privileged knowledge, which they may have even called the anointing. 
to which only a special privileged group of people were entitled, thus creating division and suspicion in the church. They were the light. Everyone else was in the darkness. And like all cults try to do, their aim, their objective was to invade the church, win the trust of the people, gain an influence over time, and then split the church, taking as many people with them as possible to start their own little cult movement, which is exactly what they did. And yet, without giving them the dignity of naming them or their teaching, we can see, nevertheless, when we look at the letter, we can see these people and their teachings. Look at your notes or in your Bible at chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. You can see these people. John, John references them and their teachings. Look what he says. Chapter 2, verses 26 and 27. These things I have written to you concerning those who are trying to lead you astray. There they are. And notice what he says, and, and the anointing which you received is abiding in you, notice what he says, and you do not have a need for anyone to teach you. And by anyone he means, not them. You don't need them to teach you. They're trying to deceive you. They, they don't have the anointing. You have the anointing, whatever that means. We'll get to that. And they don't have anything to offer you which you don't already have in Christ. Look up a few verses in verses 18 and 19. He references them again. He says, children, it is the last hour. And even as you heard Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. Notice what he says. They went out from us. Who's the they? The teachers. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For the, if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out so that it would be seen that they are not all of us. These animals were so deadly that he had to call them the worst name in existence, Antichrists. They weren't the Antichrist, but they would be people who would follow the Antichrist if he were here today. And so the question is, but who exactly were these people? What precisely did they teach? And it's hard to say because John doesn't exactly tell us. But when you put the details together, get this now, when you put the details together, they sound remarkably similar to a thriving cult group in the second and third centuries known as the Gnostics. The Gnostics, literally the knowing ones whose claim to fame was this secret knowledge that revealed the meaning of life. And yet, and yet in the letter of John, this probably wasn't full-blown Gnosticism yet because that didn't come until the second century. So what John was fighting then was a, I don't know, baby Gnosticism? Gnosticism in diapers, infant form of Gnosticism? The beginning stages of a heresy that had flooded the Mediterranean like a virus in the second and third century? And it was wicked. It was deadly, and it was super contagious, and believe it or not, Gnosticism is back today, right now, in 21st century American culture. It's got some plastic surgery, it's dyed its hair, it's got some glasses and a fake mustache, but it's the exact same thing that was pitched back then. And it manifests itself in ways that would simply blow your mind. Let me give you four features of this wacko cult group that had rocked these people's faith, which subsequently provoked John to come in biting and snarling like a German shepherd to protect his flock. Four features of this wacko cult group. Feature number one, these people, how they sucked people in was through, again, this secret, never-heard-before knowledge to which only a special, privileged few could understand and gain access to. How they got you was the exact same thing that made the Da Vinci Code sell millions of copies like 20 years ago. Remember that whole thing? I can't believe I can say 20 years ago or 15 years ago, whatever it is. Here now is the secret your pastors don't want you to know. Here is the scandal and the cover-up that the apostles and the church have hidden for centuries. Here now is the truth, the full truth. And they don't want you to know. Here now is the truth. 
by which you will obtain all the fulfillment and joy you've always wanted but could never actually gain access to. That's very alluring. That's very enticing. I mean, you can imagine these people were probably influential, dynamic, well-spoken, put-together guys who had been coming to the church for months, sitting in the services just like this, coming to church picnics like we've had, coming to small group, biding their time, wowing people with their insight, winning the trust of the people, maybe even of the leadership. That's exactly how they infiltrate the church. I mean, they had to be slick and persuasive to win a crowd of people, and they were slick and persuasive, and they did win a crowd of people. And how they won people was this alluring, secret knowledge that would solve your problems and satisfy your soul. I mean, it's no different than the self-help garbage that just lines the bookshelves today. Buy my book, get my secrets, your life gets changed. And those who wouldn't listen were only the unawakened idiots still living in shadows of darkness and ignorance, or as our culture likes to call them, they're not woke. My question is, do you see Gnosticism in your life? What I mean is, Do you see the practical Gnosticism of thinking that you need some secret knowledge or power other than what you already have in Christ? That somehow He is not sufficient. That to experience real fulfillment and joy and satisfaction that you need something outside of and in addition to the Lord Jesus Christ and His Word. You see, the Apostle John will help us He will help us put a stake in the heart of our functional Gnosticism that says that more money, better possessions, more friends, a better house, or fill in the blank will somehow fulfill the deepest longings of our soul. It can't do that. It won't do that. Because as Colossians 2.3 says, in Christ are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Feature number two of this wacko cult group. Number two, this is very interesting, the philosophy of Plato was the most fundamental aspect of their teaching. In other words, Plato's philosophy was the unseen foundation of everything they taught. And what they especially glommed onto the most about Plato's philosophy was his teaching that, get this, physical matter was bad and inferior and Spiritual matter was inherently good. Physical world, bad. Spirit world, good. The entire universe was a mistake in the minds of of many people then. In fact, one ancient Greek philosopher called the cosmos an abortion. See, the main problem, however, pitched by these false teachers is that as people, we are physical and spiritual, right? We have bodies and souls, that's, that's a real problem because your soul, the good part of you, notice carefully, the divine part of you is buried deep down inside of you trying to get out, trapped in this casing of flesh called the body. And so you see, what they, what, from their perspective, who you were on the outside is irrelevant. It's who you are on the inside was the only thing that really matters, which is precisely what the transgender movement today would have us believe. This is what I mean when I say that Gnosticism is making a comeback. You see, the transgender movement has just warmed over Gnosticism because it claims the secret knowledge that men can be women and, and women can be men and who you are on the outside is irrelevant. It's who you are on the inside that matters. And therefore, do what you want, live how you please. And anyone who disagrees is a closed-minded bigot living in the shadows of ignorance. It's exactly how these people talked. And these influencers on the surface, they they had a salvation message just like we do of freedom and liberation. They talked like we do. I mean, you have to understand what this was. It was clever enough to pass as authentic Christianity on the surface if you didn't ask too many questions. But it was capable of destroying your faith if you got trapped inside the maze. All it was was authentic Christianity. It was, it was just uh, it was the doctrine of demons masquerading as authentic Christianity. 
Because what they meant by salvation and liberation, get this, was not rescue from divine wrath by a divine savior. What they meant was a sort of psychological self-discovery. That freedom and joy and light are found within That liberation is found in the freedom of our physical bodies and the physical realm. That ignorance enslaves knowledge, frees. Is it any wonder then why John uses the word knowledge literally 40 times in five chapters? Because the knowledge you need is not some new age discovery of the worth of the self, but that the living God has revealed himself in his son, Jesus Christ. My question for you is, do you believe this? Meaning, do you believe that knowing God is what you and I need for the deepest dilemmas of the soul? Do you believe that? Did you know that the greater our grip on the character of God and all that he's done through his son is literally the secret to everything? To everything, marriage, parenting, fulfillment, joy, satisfaction, fear over COVID, greed and lust over everything. Don't you see the secret to a thriving soul is not to avoid thinking deeply about God, but to push ourselves deeper than ever into the depths of who God is. John will help us. He will help us see that significance is not found in a socioeconomic status, but found in our contemplations of who God is. Feature number three of this false teaching spreading like a virus. If the, if, if the physical body was bad and evil, then Jesus Christ, who they profess to believe in, and who they claimed from whom they received their message, then he didn't actually become a man. Makes sense, right? Physical matter, the body is bad, the body is evil, physical flesh is wicked, and therefore a holy spiritual personage would never unite in human flesh. So in their theology, Jesus Christ was not the physical incarnation of God to the planet, but what he was was a, oh, I don't know, a mere ghost, an emanation of the divine, the, the, the consciousness of the universe, the, a phantom messenger who only appeared to be physical because it was impossible to think that spirit and matter could unite in any real vital connection together, let alone in an incarnation, a God-man, unthinkable. I mean, it's no wonder that John says things like this. This is from chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Listen to what he says. He says, in this you know, key word, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. (laughs) That's typical Johannine language, the the bone-cutting power of stating the obvious. It's no wonder that John opens his letter describing the the incarnation in physical, tangible terms. Look at chapter 1 in your Bible. Chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Look what he says. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, notice the multi-sensory experience of the Messiah, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled, touched concerning the word of life. And the life was made manifest, and we have seen, and we testify, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Did you see what he says? Jesus Christ, who is always and forever with the Father. He became a literal, historical human being and dwelt on the very planet that he created. He was real. He wasn't some, he wasn't some apparition conjured to our imaginations. He was the physical manifestation of the eternal God. And you know, you know that if they denied the incarnation, you darn well know that they also denied the incarnation, the death of Christ, which is exactly what they did. It's exactly what they did because because you can't put nails through a ghost. 
And yet, and yet, the sin-bearing, sacrificial, substitutionary death of Christ is exactly why he came. I mean, it's no wonder that, that John said in chapter 3, verse 16, in this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. It's no wonder that he says in chapter 4, verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the sin-bearing sacrifice for our sins. This was not Casper the friendly ghost. This is Christ, the eternal God, who knew no sin and who became sin in our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. John will help us. What John does so well is that he puts the worth and the value, and the beauty, and the achievements of Jesus Christ on display as the foundation of our joy. My question is, do you believe that? Do, do, do we believe that the worth, and value, and beauty, and supremacy, and achievements of Jesus Christ are the foundation of our joy? John will help us. Feature number four of this wacko cult group that has reemerged in our culture was a total disregard for biblical holiness and sanctification. There was a total disregard for biblical holiness and sanctification. In other words, these guys did not think that holiness and obedience to God's word mattered in real life because part of their secret knowledge was there were no moral absolutes. Things are relative. As the enlightened one, as the woke ones, they understood that a liberated life was to transcend good and evil, to be free from the chains of conscience. I mean, it was a weird mix of like Buddhism and New Age spiritualism and Gnosticism, all sort of sprinkled together with the saccharine of artificial flavoring of Christianity. I mean, they had so cleverly worked out a scheme in their theology that since the human soul was essentially good, since they were essentially good people, good people trapped inside of this thing on the outside that didn't really matter, it didn't matter what you did on the outside, it only mattered what you felt on the inside. It was all about subjective feelings and experience, which is, to be totally honest, where a lot of believers are today in the church. And so in the end, you know what this was? All this was was nothing more than ancient postmodernism. Because postmodernism isn't new, it's old. All this was, it was the recycled mystical garbage that we hear from the culture today that claims that morality and truth are relative. I mean, it's no wonder that John says what he does in chapter 1, verse 6. Look what he says. In fact, in fact I think he's quoting the, the teachers here. I think he's quoting them. If we say, and by we he means they... If we say that we have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. This is exactly what they claim. They claim this deep, powerful experience with God. We know, they may have even called it fellowship with God. We know God. We sense God. We are in tune with God. We fellowship with God. We experience God. They claimed this relationship with God, and yet they lived in absolute darkness, indulging guilt-free in their lusts and cravings. And John says, if that's who we are, if we claim fellowship with God, and yet we walk in darkness, we are liars. And the truth is not in us. That's why he says in chapter 1, verse 8, two verses down, look what he says. I think he's quoting them again. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. And the truth is not in us. And this is precisely what they claim, sin. What do you mean, sin? There is no sin. That's a, that's a construct created to oppose us. There, there is no sin. What's right and true is not what I do, but how I feel in my heart. That's how I know what's true. And yet John counters this with a bare-knuckled punch of reality in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Look at what he says. Chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. In this, we know that we know him. How? How do we know that we know him? Tell me, John. When we keep his commandments. The one who says, I know him. 
and does not keep his commandments. Psustes esteem is a liar, and in him is not the truth. I mean, you can tell. John, John punches hard in this letter, but not because he's mean and harsh, but because holiness matters, and heresy murders. And because in his son, the father has supplied all that we need to live a radical, transformed life that puts his glory on display. John will help us with holiness. He will move us to obedience. Not not with guilt and fear, but with grace and affection. He will connect the frayed, severed wires of our lives to the heavenly power of His grace in Christ. In other words, He won't just command us to be holy. He will give us all that we need so that we can be holy, which is called grace. So that's the urgent situation behind John's letter. And that is urgent, and that brings us finally, finally to the third feature of John that reveals it to be exactly what we need when the winds of opposition begin to blow. Feature number three, the grand purpose of 1 John. The grand purpose of 1 John. Because you understand that when you sit down to read your Bible and you open up to page one of any book or letter in in the Bible that you're going to study, you have to understand that the most important thing that you have to get to the bottom of is that you need to know why that book is there. You got to know the purpose. You got to know the reason. You got to know its aims and goals and objectives. You got to know, okay, what is this book's contribution to the plan of God unfolding in the world? You can ask it this way. What would we be missing in the Christian life if we didn't have that letter or book? And you see, John makes lots of contributions to the Christian life. He teaches us about the Trinity He instructs us about the incarnation. He grips us with the glory of Christ. He helps us with the Holy Spirit. He changes our opinions about the church. He even exhilarates our souls a little bit with eschatology. But the greatest contribution that John makes to the Christian life is in demonstrating what is the authenticating Evidence that reveals that you have eternal life. That's what he provides. In other words, if you have eternal life, how would you know? Because as I said at the beginning, John's goal here, his explicitly stated aim for putting pen to paper, is to provide glad-hearted assurance and joy that those who have yielded to Jesus Christ by faith do in fact have eternal life. That's what he says in chapter 5, verse 13. If you have your notes, the, the verse is on there. These things I have written to you. Why, John? To what end? For what reason? That you who believe in the name of the Son of God would know, you would know that you have eternal life. It's certain. It's secure. It's guaranteed. It's purchased and paid for. And yet what this does is raise the question, how would you know? How would you know if you did have eternal life? Because again, again, it's not enough to just say we do, there should be the validating evidence in our lives that proves we do. Agree? I mean, anyone who gets saved out of spiritual darkness into spiritual light should have some authenticating marks of of some reality of salvation. And so how do we know that we truly have the treasure of eternal life? And that's exactly what I'm going to tell you right now. Now, I'm going to give you five, from the Apostle John, from the letter, I'm going to condense his teaching on salvation, and I'm going to give you five factors required to have eternal life and how you know you have it, if in fact you do have it. Five factors required to have eternal life and how you could know you have it. This is a distillation of his teaching. Here's where we're going. Five factors. Factor number one. And these are all in your notes. To have eternal life from God, get this now, there had to be an incarnation. There had to be an incarnation. In other words, for anyone to get saved, God 
had to become a man and save the human race from the inside out. The Bible's logic is we are joined to the first Adam in spiritual death. Therefore, we needed a second Adam to come. A sinless, perfect Adam who would come in the place of humanity. And he had to be God so that he could be the perfect mediator between God and man. That's why John says in chapter 4 verse 14 that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. There had to be an incarnation. Factor number two. For anyone to be saved, there had to be a substitution. Not only did there have to be an incarnation, God had to become a man, there had to be a substitution. In other words, the Savior of the world didn't just come to be a good example. He had to die in the place of the very people who deserved to die. Why? Because Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. The soul who sins will die. Ezekiel 18.4. There's no getting around this. But plot twist of the universe. God in his infinite mercy made a way that the wrath that sinners deserve may be placed upon another. God made a way to find the charges. How did he do that? How he did that was by providing a substitute to stand in the place of hell-deserving sinners and being treated as their sins deserve. He had to be man to represent the human race, but he had to be God to actually pay for sin. And that's why John says in chapter 3, verse 16, that he laid his life down, huperhemon, in our place. That's why chapter 4 verse 10. Says that the father loved us. And sent his son to be the propitiation. The wrath appeasing sacrifice. For our sins. Factor number three. We're almost done. To gain access to eternal life. There had to be submission. There had to be an incarnation. There had to be a substitution. But there had to be submission. And by, what I, by that I mean you got to believe this stuff. you got to have faith in it without reservation, without qualification. That, that's what faith is. What is faith but the thirsty submission to what God has revealed in the Word? What is faith but to clear all the other competitors out of your life and grab a hold of Christ alone as the one who satisfies the deepest longings of the soul? And as the one who made the solution for sins by the sacrifice of himself. But number four, factor number four, to gain access to eternal life, there had to be regeneration. You see, you got to believe, but to be able to believe, there had to be regeneration. Or as John likes to call it, you had to be born again. In other words, to get saved, God had to awaken your dead soul through the gospel. You literally needed a spiritual resurrection of the soul so that you could repent and believe in Christ in the first place, which leads us finally to factor number five. Because regeneration always, 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 always leads to transformation. There had to be a substitution. There had to be an incarnation. There had to be a substitution. There had to be submission. You have to believe in him. But to believe, there has to be regeneration. And regeneration always results in transformation. And I'll prove it. I'll prove it. Look, look at your notes at chapter 3, verse 9. Look at the connection between being born again and the subsequent life change. Chapter 3, verse 9. Everyone who has been born of God does not practice sin. See the connection? Born of God, do not practice sin. Chapter 4, verse 7. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Do you see the connection? When you're born again, you actually can love people. And you know God. Chapter 5, verse 18. Everyone who has been born from God, does not 
continue in sin. And by, by that, he doesn't mean sinlessness. He, he means holiness. And so the final question is, okay, well, what kind of transformation should we see in our lives? When push comes to shove and an actual experience of real life, what, what kind of signs or evidence or tangible things should we see in our life that reveals that our salvation is authentic? And John exactly tells us that very thing. In fact, he gives us three signs, three manifestations that we have been born again. You know what, you don't want to know what they are? I'm going to tell you anyway. Here they are. Number one, truth. Number two, holiness. And number three, love. Those are the signs that John gives us that our salvation is legitimate, that we have been born again. One, truth. In other words, you believe the Bible, you love the Bible, and you do not entertain anything that's not in the Bible. You should look for those kinds of things. Number two, holiness. Holiness. Highly imperfect though it may be, we should be seeing gradually increasing life change and transformation. And number three, love. If we are born again, we should care about people other than ourselves and we should display that in affectionate sacrifice that does what's best for other people. Do you see? Truth, <laughs> holiness, and love. That reveals the authenticity of salvation. So all the pieces fit together, right? Your transformation reveals your regeneration, which results in submission to the truth of the incarnation when Christ became our substitution. And so I end the sermon the same way I began the sermon. Do you have eternal life? And if you do, how, how do you know that you do? How would you know if you did have eternal life? Because you have to understand, in asking the question, John is not trying to make a brittle people who always fidget and tremble in the waters of uncertainty. Rather, John is building a battalion of souls who believe in the name of the Son of God. A people whose assurance and joy is so indestructible because it is unbelievably rooted in Christ and not in their own achievements, but in Christ and what He has accomplished. And when we have that, we do not tremble when the winds of opposition begin to blow. And mark my words, the winds of opposition have already begun to blow. Oh Lord, we are grateful for the letter of 1 John and we are eager to eat it, devour it, be absorbed in it. I pray for unbelievable life change. I pray for something unprecedented. I pray that you would work in our church in such a way that the only explanation is a sovereign God doing the supernatural. So help us, oh Lord, to absorb, to soak, to meditate, to be changed and transformed. And we give you all the glory in advance. In Christ's mighty name, amen. A few brief things before we close here. Um, I don't remember the order, but could we actually show the video first? If you could pull that up. Um, so we support a number of missionaries, and what I really love also is church planters in the area. Uh, a friend of our church named Eric Darjean uh, is a, a, a man church planter that the church sent out before I arrived here on the scene. Uh, as the pastor, but a man that I know, a man that I've met, uh, a man who uh, uh, I am uh, becoming friends with, and they are out in Fort Worth, and so we want to show a brief update uh, about what's going on in their church plant over there in Fort Worth, and so um, it'll be a, a quick two-minute video, and after that I'll come give you a few announcements. <laughs> 